I think we're always going to need some kind of a farmer-led check on the system, like the Real Organic Project. Um, we may get a, an ideal president of the United States that would put in place an ideal Secretary of Agriculture who would, as Bernie Sanders said when he came to Iowa, he said, make sure we have the strongest organic standards there can be. And that would, would stand up and change the organic standards and make them what they should be, like we've been lobbying for. That may happen. It may not happen. But even if it does, that's only a short-term um, outlook because the next presidency could change it again. And so we're, I think we're always going to need some kind of a farmer-led um, check on the organic standards. And I think that's going to be necessary. I didn't used to think that. I thought I used to think that, well, we're going to achieve our goal and we're going to embarrass USDA. They're going to change and then we'll be set. That's not going to happen because the industry is, is there all the time. They're in the back door of USDA hammering on them because it's about money. They're a $60 billion a year industry and, and that's big money and they want that money. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from organic farmer Francis Tickey of Radiance Dairy in Fairfield, Iowa. Francis was a founding farmer of the Real Organic Project and continues to serve on our executive board. Every time I talk to Francis and visit his farm, I learned so many new things about farming, soil science, and today's conversation was no exception. All right, I'm here with Dr. Francis Tickey at Radiance Dairy. Hi, Francis. Hi, Lindley. Thanks Dr. So Lindley. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks for having us. It's winter. What are your cows doing out on pasture? You only need this to do is, 120 days, Francis. This is crazy. We're at 240 days. We doubled it. Um, this is amazing that we still have grass and we have cows out grazing. And we probably got another 10 days or two weeks of it yet. So you don't just get the bare minimum and then say, I've done the all the grazing I need, I'm <laughs> gonna put them in the barn for the season? <laughs> I think it's funny when people just do the bare minimum 120 days. Actually, I talked to a manager for Horizon when the new rule came out and, and he said, they measure all their feed, they weigh it before they give it to them and then they weigh all the residual just to see if they can get exactly 30% for 120 days and I thought wow that's really amazing because w grass is the basis of what we do. Um, our cows probably get 80% of their dry matter intake from, from grass which surprises me because, uh, when I learn about the grass milk they have a 60% requirement. I don't know how, what they do with the other 40% but um, so we feed a little bit of grain in the milking parlor just mostly to bribe the cows to come into the parlor. So you would never be, even with 80% DMI, you wouldn't be able to get the grass-fed label just for that little bit of grain? No, we, that there can be no grain. I mean, some okay. of them will feed molasses, which in my mind is worse than feeding grain because it's a higher sugar than content than, than corn. But um, it's just the rules, you know, rules are rules. Rules are rules. I also saw that you could use the spent, um, you, for making ethanol, the corn. They can use the spent grains yep, ethanol. and that's still 100% grass-fed. It's not very well regulated. And uh -huh. sugar beets, I've been to sugar beet farms where they're growing it for 100% grass-fed. They, they yeah. And so a lot of times it doesn't mean grazing on pasture 100% grass-fed can be in oh, confinement. No, can be, they can feed um, silage, a lot of silage. Okay. Yeah. But like in confinement, they can feed hay. Sure. Yes. So um, explain a little bit too about the difference between the organic standards then and grass-fed. 
Well, I don't really know what the grass-fed standards are that well, but all I know is that they have, at least as far as I know, they have a 60% dry matter intake from grass, from okay. pasture requirement. For okay. a, um, maybe it's more than 120 days, maybe 160 days, is that right? Okay. A little longer. I, I don't know for sure. So, yeah. um, but um, organic you know, rules require 30% dry matter intake for at least 120 days um, dry matter intake from grass. And, you know, when I first started grazing and a lot of the farmers that were doing the grazing, you know, we didn't even think like that. We just thought about how we can maximize the grass and use very little grain or maybe no grain. Um, so it's all a matter of managing the pastures. Can you describe how it's actually cheaper for a farm to bring in grain than it would be to pasture <clears throat> their animals? That doesn't make sense to me. It seems like it'd be better for the farmer to get as much feed as they can from their pastures because it's expensive to bring in grain. Why, well, I why think is it it's so cheap? better. I, I think that it's better to, to, um, to me, it, if you manage the pastures well, it, it should be cheaper than, than grain. However, I think you got to look at the model for the big CAFOs. If they have five or 10,000 cows, the owners don't milk the cows. Really, you got to think of a stratified. They have the owners, we have the management, who's also pretty well paid. And then we have the workers who get the minimum amount. And so it's really a matter of extracting the resources of the profit to the highest level. That's the biggest issue. And I think that's what's causing these, these um, industrial CAFOs to pro proliferate because it's a money-making, a profitable model for the owners and, and the managers. Um, but it's not necessarily profitable for the worker. I mean, it, it's a... It's not a high-paying job for a worker. Whereas a family farm, the family owns, has the capital, the management, and the labor. And so the farm, the whole, the farm family um, invests in all levels and gets all the profit or loss, whatever it is, from the operation. And it's, and it's limited by size. I mean, uh, a grazing farm that's managed well is usually quite a bit smaller. I mean, it definitely is a lot smaller than a big CAFO. And so it's, it's limited by size, whereas the CAFO is not really that limited by size. Would you explain what's going on at this, this location here? How many acres and how many cows you have? Okay, on this farm, we now have 736 acres. We milk about 90 cows. We have about 160 cows of all ages, from calves on up. Um, but we also do a, quite a bit of cropping, organic cropping. Uh, and so um, we have about 60 small pastures, about two acres each. And we milk the cows twice a day. And after each milking, the cows move to a new pasture, so they get fresh grass twice a day. And of course, then um, there's, there's a lot of benefits to that. One is they, they eat all the grass and the whole very diverse mixture of grasses and legumes and forage, various forbs. Um, and, and then it can regrow. Then, then they go out to the next pasture, and then that can rest and regrow. And so that, it, it encourages diversity. It encourages deep-rooted plants, which helps build the soil. So it helps um, improve the soil quality. It sequesters carbon. It improves the biodiversity on the landscape, better wildlife habitat. And the cows are eating a natural diet um, in their natural habitat, so they're healthier um, in, the same, in the same way. And also because um, they're on that natural diet, we know that the um, milk and meat from cows on grass is, is higher in omega-3 fatty acids and conjugate linoleic acids and other um, nutrients. And so it's healthier for the people. It's healthier for the soil, healthier for the landscape. Um, healthier for the um, animals and healthier for the people that consume the product. And so on all levels, it's a healthier situation. It always reminds me of what um, uh, Wendell Berry said. When we took animals off a landscape, what we did is we created two pollution problems. One with industrial crop production, 
and all the pollution and water quality problems with that. And the other one is with industrial animal production and all the pollution problems we have with that. Because now we have to bring all the feed to the animals and, and then we have to pick up their manure and haul it all back out into the field. Whereas in a good grazing system, uh, the cows harvest the feed, they um, spread their manure right where it needs to be, they enjoy their work, and they're healthier because they're in their natural environment. Oh, actually, quite a few farmers are grazing. In Wisconsin, at least a few years ago, about 25% of the dairy farms were grazing dairy farms. So it is a profitable, uh, and, the, and the research shows that on a per cow basis, it's as profitable or more profitable to have cows on grass than in confinement. Um, but again, that model of the owner sitting in an office somewhere or in his home somewhere and, and extracting the profits out of the system is what drives the CAFO model, I think. Are there things that the USDA is doing right now that kind of encourage the other system that we need to do um, away with? Well, USDA, of course, helps fund the CAFO manure pits, which, you know, it helps to, to, to uh, subsidize the whole system. And um, now there's talk about them subsidizing um, methane biodigesters for um, the other cows. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, I thought that they were going to be getting out again here again. Okay, so now there's talk about USDA subsidizing biodigesters for the manure, which is a second subsidy for a CAFO, because when cows are on grass, we don't need methane digesters. I mean, we, sometimes you hear about um, an organic farm that has a methane digester, and right away I think, well, that's not really a grazing farm. They must have cows in confinement a lot if they're going to collect the manure and make it into methane. Um, when these cows are out here, they spread their manure where it needs to be on the pasture. Now in the wintertime, we do, um, we do some outwintering. When the weather's nice, we let the cows out in the pastures and we feed them their, their, feed, their hay out there. And, and um, baleage too. Uh, baleage, which is uh, hay made wet into silage into bales, as you know, but since not is. <laughs> um, but um, in the wintertime, we also have a, a large open building and we, we start out with a foot and a half of sawdust and the cows can lay in there um, and and then twice a day um, we'll come in there with a small tractor and a little cultivator and we rake it and so the manure that the cows deposit gets mixed up in the sawdust and we've been using that now for about a year and a half um, and one half of one winter and half of a, and a whole winter and we love it the cows love it because um, it's a way to keep the cows clean uh, their manure gets incorporated right into the sawdust and then it starts to compost and so all winter long, it's composting. And of course, it has a little bit of heat for the cows. It's comfortable for them to lay on. But um, it's so easy. We can rake that barn in about two or three minutes. And so it saves a whole lot of work um, compared to anything else. And then when it's all done in the spring, we have um, really good compost to put out in the field again. I've seen how comfortable it can be uh, to see cows lying on compost when it's snowy out compared to that cement situation. Yeah. What does that do for their health too? Well, cows that are in confinement all the time, they're generally standing on concrete, and that's not good for their, their health. They t tend to have foot problems, um, and they have to have their, foot, their feet trimmed constantly and, and uh, taken care of. As a matter of fact, I, I almost never trim a cow's hoof. Um, once in a while, I see one that got a little long, and I'll trim it a little bit during milking, but it's been actually a few years, I think, since I've actually trimmed, maybe two years since I've trimmed a cow. I can see these cows know how to move. How far do they have to walk to the milking barn on the farthest? Okay, um, our paddocks, they, the furthest they usually walk is about, uh, about a half a mile. 
And um, now in the fall, however, I extend the grazing by beyond these 60 paddocks, I have hay fields um, around the periphery that I make hay on for the, um, during the summer for the winter feed. But then about August or so, I can stop making hay and then I let that grass grow up there on that hay field. And then I come like in October when the growing season's ending and all our paddocks are getting to the end, I can start grazing these hay fields that are further out and it'll be cool, and so the cows don't mind walking an extra three, you know, three quarters of a mile or a mile one way um, when it's cool out. And so that's what I, I do then is I, um, I extend the grazing season by grazing further out into the farm starting late in, in, in the fall. And how do you change those rotations depending on the time of year? So in the spring when there's a ton of grass compared to making more hay versus when it dries out later in the summer? Now I mentioned we have 60 paddocks and in the spring and early summer it grows really fast. So um, we'll, we'll move around fairly quickly because remember we have to, we move around the paddocks and after they come out of the first paddock they go on and then that can regrow and it'll regrow quickly like maybe three weeks. And so we can make a, about a three week cycle the first time. And then it starts to get hotter and drier and so we slow the rotation down. and, and um, and, and then maybe it'll be like 30 days or 40 days, or it could be more in a drought. And that's when we can start using some of the hay fields too, if we need to. Um, and so early in the season, when we can't keep up, we can make hay on some of the paddocks because the cows can't eat it as fast as they could, it grows. But then as the growing season um, slows the growth down, as it gets hotter and drier, then um, we need to slow the rotation down because it has to have adequate rest to recover. That's one of the biggest mistakes people make when they start doing the grazing is that they, uh, the first time through the grass is tall, second time it's down to here, the third time it's down to here, and they got to go faster and faster and faster in order to have enough for the cows to eat. And that way you're, you're ending up uh, grazing too fast and you're starting to kill off your diversity. So I've heard grazers talk about this S-shaped curve and getting the cows back at the right time because if they wait too long, it starts to lignify a little bit. Do you want to talk about everything yeah. you think about there? Yeah, what happens is that if, um, think about the growth cycle of not only grass, but like even a, a microbes in a, in a Petri dish. At first it's very slow as they start to multiply in the Petri dish, or the grass, it starts, it, it has very little leaf area, and so it grows slowly, it can only catch so much energy. And as it gets bigger, suddenly it can catch a lot more energy and starts to grow fast. And that goes into what we call a linear phase. Before it was in a lag phase where it was coming slowly, starting to come up. Now it's going in this linear phase, going very quickly. And when it, uh, now what happens is if it gets mature, then it starts to make seed heads, and then it starts to taper off in its, its um, production of biomass. And so the thing is, you want to graze it right at the top of that linear phase, and you want to take it down to um, not all the way back to zero, because so it has to start out slow. We take it down, um, we, the one rule of thumb is to take half and leave half. And that way the plant has enough uh, residual biomass or leaf area to, to catch enough sunlight, to photosynthesize enough to be able to grow fast and keep it in that linear growth cycle. So I looked at Aurora Dairy's stats, and right now they've got 12,000 cows at one of their complexes and 7,000 acres of pasture. How did you find that out? Uh, they just have it on their website. I'm just curious, is that, you know... So they have 12,000 cows in one place? 12,000 cows in um, their Platteville location, and, oh. they, and they advertise 7,000 acres of pasture. Do you think they're getting 30% on that? Well, let's see, I'd have to do some calculating. Um, <clears throat> 12,000 cows. <clears throat> well, that, that would be um, almost a half an acre per cow, wouldn't it? Am I thinking of it right here? Yep, yep. Yeah. 
Um, that's not a lot. I like to have an acre or two acres for, for, per cow to have enough uh, flexibility. But I question how they can get the cows to walk far enough to get out there. And I also question if they actually are using all that for pasture or if they're making hay on some of that for their winter feed. Um, that's, you know, they can tell us one thing in their website, but if they are actually um, doing it the way people are led to believe, maybe something else. What would, uh, would a surprise inspection be all that it would take to ensure that this is happening? What, what are some of the changes we need to make sure that they're grazing enough? Yeah, I, I, what do we need to do? I think that, first of all, the, the record keeping needs to be more stringent. And, and they need to have a record of, like you say, how many acres and how many cows and the uh, production per acre, the expected yield. And then they have to also specify how many of the acres are made for hay at least part of the year. Um, are they, is, it, is that 100% graze or is it partially grazed? And then the inspections need to be more frequent. Um, I, you can't have one just one inspection. You can't have it planned inspection. Um, remembering back to when the Washington Post did their um, expose on, on Aurora, and they followed them for days, and they didn't see hardly any cows out there. And... Um, and so they reported it to USDA, and USDA said, okay, called them up and said, we'll have an inspection. So, of course, they knew they were coming for an inspection, and so they, they had cows out on pasture. And so... Um, Just an unannounced inspection? You think that would make a big difference go online? Yeah, and, and for a big dairy like that, you may have to have more than one unannounced inspection. Um, because you kind of have, you know, with any scientific research, you've got to have more samples so their excuse when um, Peter Wersky uh, got the drone footage was that it was a moment in time, even though he had gotten like seven or eight moments in time over yes. the course of a week. Uh, what sort of excuses might they have for keeping cows in during the grazing season? I don't know what reasons they'd have for keeping them in. I mean, if it's really hot, um, I have shade actually, I have portable shade for the cows. So when it's hot, I, I move the shade around and the cows can, I move it around the, in the paddock. And I'll actually, I'll put the, the shade within the paddock in an area where I think needs more nutrients. So the cows, they congregate there and then they'll, they'll put their manure there and it'll help to stimulate the growth in that area that needs the nutrients. So um, I, I think that portable shades are great. This company that sold me this portable shade, they said they sold 12 of them to some farm in Texas. It wasn't, I don't think it was an organic dairy, but it was a... They're probably expensive, but it makes sense. You could really keep your pasture healthy because then you're moving, like you said, where the nutrients are, but um, at the, so that means that they're not just congregating around the, the water trough either, right? There's another place to go that's nice and cool. Yes, and, and here, um, if you look around this farm, um, the tree line, all the fence lines have trees, and that's, you know, because when we bought it, it was that way, which was good. So early on, um, what I did was in the, um, in the daytime, I would put the cows in that part of the paddock with the trees in it, and that night I'd put them where there were no trees. And so um, what happens over time is that the nutrients will migrate to, to where the trees are because the cows are standing there and, and dropping their manure there. So now that I got the shade, I, I reverse it. And so I put the cows where the trees are at night, and I put the cows where there's no trees in the daytime, and then I can move the shade around to where it needs to be, and I can get the nutrients out there in the field more. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of attention to detail that you have. Uh, yeah, I learn something every year on the <laughs> grazing. Still, so, huh? And I sometimes I have to relearn what I learned before. <laughs> Would you tell everybody what's gone on with Horizon Dairy? And the big question that I have with this one is, do you think even if the 30% grazing was enforced, 
and the origin of livestock was enforced, which we haven't gotten into, but others have. Um, do you think that this would still be happening just because of consolidation in the industry? And so maybe talk about what's happened and then um, is it because we're not enforcing the rules that this is happening or do we have more to work on in terms of consolidation? I think the reason that we got in trouble with the organic dairy is that um, the two things. One is the origin of livestock where these big dairies were converting cows in a way that we all know it's not right and we've been trying to get that loophole closed for decades and it hasn't happened. And so they convert conventional cows to organic in a way they shouldn't be able to do and so they can quickly build a big capo dairy. Uh, that's one of the things. The other thing is the grazing rule I don't think has been um, enforced enough and frankly my personal opinion is not stringent enough but I don't think we're going to get it more stringent in this day and age. But there still I think is, is um, a pressure because of the the way our system works, our capitalist system, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be capitalists, but I'm saying that just the way it works is that uh, capital grows to the top. And so if anybody can get an advantage by making a bigger and bigger operation, they'll do that. Whereas again, if a small family farm, they only have so much labor, it's harder for them to exp to expand. Um, and they, they didn't tend to, don't tend to have the mentality of expanding. I mean, the farmers I know who are good grazers, they have the mentality that that they want to sharpen their operation and make it work better and better every year. And I don't see them want, very many of them wanting to have that many cows. Uh, it, you know, 100 cows is a lot. Um, 200 cows is, is probably too many. <laughs> they don't want to push the carrying capacity of their land. They're thinking that about too. that. Yes, yeah. they don't want to push the land too hard either. Yeah. So, so what happened with Horizon? Um, what happened in what way? Uh, this fall, 89 contracts oh. were canceled. Let everybody know what's happened here. Yes, okay. Yeah, we, we found out that this fall, Horizon Dairy um, canceled 89 contracts with farmers, small organic farmers in the northeast part of the country. And they've given a lot of excuses, but basically what it comes down to in my mind is that they want to source milk from bigger dairy farms. Um, it's easier to make one stop than to make 10 stops with their milk truck. And that, again, is the, the way of accruing capital. That it'll look good for their shareholders, you know, that they're going to make a little more money off it. And so um, what can you do? You can't, it's hard to stop something like that. Um, They've told us that the average number of cows for their New England sourcing has actually only gone up from 98 to 100. So from 98 to 100? Yeah, so that's what they've said. And they've said that, um, you know, it's really not about going bigger it's about the location and so um, this really isn't an issue actually of enforcement um, we're not talking about big you know CAFO milk from out west yeah I guess what I'm getting at is are there other things we need to do besides um, pressure for rule changes with with grazing and origin of livestock in terms of protecting family farmers you know, I don't know what we can do. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> We've always chosen to be an add-on to the USDA. What, what's the thinking behind that? What, what, what can we do, um, I think, to, to keep make our government good and do the right thing? Well, with organic, you mean being under USDA's wing? Real about? organic project. Oh, the real We've organic. chosen to be an add-on as opposed to a standalone, oh. and there's a reason for that. Yeah, there is. Uh, well, you know, you go back to the... when. 
uh, USDA took on the organic certification, the organic program. They didn't want to do it. It was organic farmers that lobbied that USDA would take it on. And, and for a legitimate reason is that there were so many certifiers out there and they were kind of vying for territory and they each had little different rules. And like, for example, me as a farmer, if I were to uh, um, want to buy some grain from somebody and they were certified by a different certifier, I would have to have some kind of a paperwork uh, audit in order to make sure that it was acceptable. And if I were to go, to, if you go to to go through two or three different certifying agents, you got all this paperwork, and it, it it seemed that there should be a unified standard. I mean, we can all agree that, but it wasn't happening over the years. And so, organic farmers lobbied USDA to take it on. USDA didn't not want it; they took it to the Agricultural Marketing Service, the agency there, um, and um, they didn't want it, you know. And so, it was a big big deal. Um, but eventually, they took it on. And and you know, I'm kind of ambivalent about it because. I think we'd be in the same problem whether USDA was, was running the, the organic program or, or not because the big corporations are getting in. Now it's a $60 billion a year industry. And at first they just ignored us. You know, we were nothing. Uh, but now they want a piece of the pie. They want the whole pie. And, and um, if we had had just private certifiers, you know, they would just make their own. Why couldn't Whole Foods or some other company make their own certification? agency and their own organic certification and call it organic. I mean, there are state laws, there are hodgepodge around the country, but we would be in the same problem. We'd still have the pressure by big business to find a way to sell with the word organic and do it as cheaply as possible. That's what we have really here. Whether it's the big chicken factory farms or the big dairy factory farms or the hydroponics, they just want the organic label as cheap as possible. And that would happen whether it's under USDA or whether it was private um, certifiers, because Monsanto could have their own certification, um, organic certification, and they'd get around the state rules somewhere or another. Uh, so, so I don't know what the what the solution is. Yeah, but now I the real organic project, I think, is really the solution, actually, because um, now we have the USDA base uh, baseline certification, and there's a lot involved with that, as you well know, all the um, materials that are used and so on. And we just add on with the Real Organic Project, we add on another layer that brings it back to the original standards. Um, cows on pasture, chickens ac access to the outdoors, um, all crops in the soil, and a few other little things like that, origin of livestock. And so we're really bringing the rules, the organic rules, back to the original vision that organic farmers had and that the writers of the, the Organic Foods Production Act had. And so we're really bringing it back. And, and that's really valuable, I think, because now, especially as we're growing and getting a label, the Real Organic Project label, consumers can see that and they know that this is real organic. And, and we're hoping that more and more farmers will jump on. And we, we think most organic farmers are real organic farmers. Um, but probably in some cases, the biggest volume is from the, what we wouldn't call real organic. The biggest volume of dairy products on the shelf if you go to, especially go to the big box stores and the private label things, I wouldn't call them real organic. Uh, the eggs, we, we heard from the head of the USDA uh, program that if the animal welfare standards that were in process had gone into effect, 75% of the eggs on, on the shelf that are labeled organic would no longer be eligible to be organic. And so um, the Real Organic Project sorts these things out. And so we just need to keep building that label. Now we have 850 farms that are certified by the Real Organic Project. We need to build that so we can start finding that label on the grocery store shelf. We have it on our products, uh, but we're only a little dairy in a little town. 
but that can grow um, around the whole country. What is the difference between the Real Organic Project label and, and say a Whole Foods or a private label that comes out that might say great things? But as a consumer, how do you, how do you weed through the greenwashing? Well, I always, when people ask me, what about dairy products? I, the first thing I say is if you want Real Organic, first of all, do not buy a private label dairy product in a big box store because you can be pretty sure that that comes from a CAFL, whether it's eggs or dairy products. And so do not buy that. And when it comes to things like the, the main crops that we know are hydroponic, like, like uh, blueberries and so on, um, you might just well assume those are all hydroponic unless it has the Real Organic Project label or it has some other that you know the, the grower. Yeah. How do we increase transparency for dairy? I look up a lot of things, state line crossings. They don't even separate organic milk. Really that. Separate organic milk. It's just dairy is all lumped together. So I'm wondering if you have some ideas about how we can increase transparency so when people buy a carton of Horizon or whatever, they can actually know what's where, you know, where that milk is coming. Oh, well, you can actually, on the milk carton, it, it's supposed to have the plant number so you can find out what plant it comes from, the dairy products. I'm not sure that tells you very much <laughs> because often they will have some other company that they don't own bottle it for them. Um, so we don't really have that transparency and I don't know how we're going to get it. Will you talk about that, um, what led up to that meeting with Vilsack that, we, that the Real Organic Project was able to get? Well, um, the Real Organic Project met with Tom Vilsack on a Zoom call and um, we uh, called as many of the former NOSB members as we could find um, find contact information for and we asked them if they would sign on to a letter uh, and we, we listed in that letter that some of the main issues that we were concerned about things like um, the hydroponics, um, the capo dairies, the origin of livestock rule, um, the eggs with chickens with no access to the outdoors and said that we really need to have um, these problems addressed. There, some of these are in the works. The origin of livestock rule could just be real quickly fixed. Um, the animal welfare standards could be easily put into place. And so we um, addressed all these things, and we had, I believe, 43 former NOSB members that signed on to the letter, which was a lot. Um, and so it shows pretty broad support because some of the NOSB members, former NOSB members, were actually what we would have thought of as more industry supporters than, than small-scale organic farmer supporters in, in the old days. So uh, we were pleased with that. Then we, we contacted um, Secretary Vilsack's office and asked if we could have a, a call with him and, and they said yes we could. And we had a, had a call with, with um, Secretary Vilsack and he was very cordial and he's very knowledgeable. He knows about all these issues and um, he is a very good speaker. Um, I, I know him from the fact that he was the governor of Iowa, you know I'm from Iowa, and so um, but we also have experienced that he, he understands our issues, understands our problems, but he has so much pressure from the industry that it's easy for him to bend in that direction. And so although he told us on the call about things he could do and couldn't do, um, and they're working on some things, um, I don't think it, the call really changed his mind in any way. And, um, you know, he could, do, he could make these changes quickly. I mean, he can say that, yeah, he's going to get all this flack and everything, but, he, you know, he's Secretary of Agriculture. He could stand up to him. He could put in the origin of livestock rule now. He could um, 
put into place the animal welfare standards now and not send them back out for comment again so the industry can try to dilute them down to nothing again. He could do these things very quickly. And he has the power. There's no question about it. I mean, he may weasel about it, but he does have the power and, and uh, it, it's not happening. Do so, you remember the kind of the sense you got when you hung up on the phone about the OLPP in particular? Do you remember what he said that, that really kind of made me think, oh gosh, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna happen. I think he said it's gonna go back over comment, didn't he? What did he say? He did, but he was also talking about how um, th there's just too much pressure in the Senate um, Agricultural Committee. And I believe he was referring to Debbie Stabenow in Michigan. Just, there's just too much opposition was, was the sense I got from, from looking at that conversation. That, it, that we weren't going to get the OLPP either. I don't know if you felt that way. Well, I sort of remember that now, yeah. Yeah, he, what he kind of alluded to is the fact that um, on both parties, both political parties, there is a key person that is against the animal welfare standards. On the, on the Republican side is Pat Roberts, and on the Democratic side is Deborah Stabenow. And coincidentally, they have big um, chicken factories in their backyard. And so, um, but you know... Uh, they, they fought that battle for a while and they've lost a lot of ground, these two leaders in the Senate. And so I think um, they lost some credibility in doing that. And I think that it's time for USDA to stand up and, and do it. I think we could easily get it done. Do you think that the Real Organic Project will go away at some point once, you know, there is reform? Are we going to get to that point or are we always going to need kind of a farmer-led check? On the system. Yeah, I think we're always going to need some kind of a farmer-led check on the system, like the Real Organic Project. Um, we may get a, an ideal president of the United States that would put in place an ideal Secretary of Agriculture who would, as Bernie Sanders said when he came to Iowa, he said, make sure we have the strongest organic standards there can be. And that would, would stand up and change the organic standards and make them what they should be, like we've been lobbying for. That may happen. It may not happen. But even if it does, that's only a short-term um, outlook because the next presidency could change it again. And so we're, I think we're always going to need some kind of a farmer-led um, check on the organic standards. And I think that's going to be necessary. I didn't used to think that. I thought, I used to think that, well, we're going to achieve our goal and we're going to embarrass USDA. They're going to change and then we'll be set. That's not going to happen because the industry is, is there all the time. They're in the back door of USDA hammering on them because it's about money. They're a $60 billion a year industry, and, and that's big money, and they want that money. Did um, this ex experience on the National Organic Standards Board, did that kind of, did you kind of wake you up to anything, or those four years that you were there? Um, five years. Did you, five years you were there. <laughs> that's right, don't belittle those years. Did that change your opinion from when you came in and when you left? Well, um... When I was at USDA, yeah, I got a little jaded by some of the things that happened. Like I was, during one of the NOSB meetings, um, I was walking with the director of the Organic Standards and I said, um, what's happening with the Origin of Livestock rule? It's been out there for years and it's just a, a few words changed. And he said, oh, we're working on it, we're working on it. And I said, I could fix that in 10 minutes, let's do it. And oh, we're, we'll get at it, we'll get at it. Well, of course, I never got at it. And it wasn't a matter of trying to get time to do it. It was a matter of getting the political courage to do it. And so I, I was a little jaded that, that things aren't happening that should happen and could happen. We haven't touched on the New Yorker article that just came out a couple weeks ago and uh, grain fraud in general. This was domestic, but at the time you were on the National Organic Standards Board, it was imported. 
grain fraud. What effect has, has the fraud had on the growth of organic grain farming in the country? Yeah, I think the grain fraud, both you know, international fraud and domestic, has, has had an effect uh, on organic farmers. First of all, when there was all of this fraud, there was all this dumping, and so prices were down for organic um, crops. And suddenly now they're starting to tighten up and, and caught this big fraudster. Um, and so suddenly the price of grain is really high. And so it's caused ups and downs, which uh, high prices are great for crop farmers, but they're not so good for animal farmers, and livestock producers, and, and uh, the other way around, you know. And so uh, stability is good. So um, I'm glad we're catching some of these fraudsters, and I think we need to keep, it, keep at it because it really ruins the reputation of organic to have all this fraud going on. Do you think it's affected the growth of pasture-based livestock operations? Uh, Having hmm. so much cheap grain available kind of Well, made cheap it... grain could have, could have encouraged more organic farmers to um, feed more grain. But um, I, I don't know that it would have really overthrown the organic. I mean, uh, it may have pushed in the direction of more grain being fed and less grass-fed milk. But um, having a grass-fed dairy farm is really a, a life kind of a commitment. And so um, if you're not committed to it, you're not going to stick with it anyway. Let's talk about, you've been able to direct market, and there's an exciting thing going on with direct marketing, um, but how difficult is that for dairy farms? I remember when we heard about Horizon, and there's 89 farmers that aren't going to have a contract now, and I came to you, I said, well, let's figure out, can they direct market? And, and you said, I don't, I don't think so. There's a lot of barriers. What are some of those barriers to doing that? Well, one thing, direct marketing um, on a farm... Farmers, you know, are used to doing certain things. They have their milking equipment, they have their managing their pastures and their cows and their, their field equipment. Suddenly, if you're going to process milk on the farm, suddenly you have a whole set of different kinds of equipment that you have to be, you know, not only get working, but keep it maintained and working. And you have to market that product, something that farmers don't usually do. And so it's a whole new game for farmers to get out there and try to do, do that direct marketing. Um, but it could happen. Um, I, I think the model that they could use is they, they could pool together these farmers that have lost their market and they need to get somebody who could make it happen, but they could put together a processing plant or they could rent a processing plant that's already in existence, um, like uh, one or two, two days a week. And so, or maybe yeah, a couple times a week. So, and then have their own private label and um, market it in their region. I think, I think there's a lot of potential for that. What kind of debt would a farm have to go into to put in their own processing facility for their own farm? Yeah, what kind of debt? Well, I did it on the cheap. You know, I probably got 150000 in invested in the processing at most, um, including the building. But a friend of mine 20 years ago did it, and he put in a million and a half operation, a million and a half dollar operation. And, and I think now you couldn't hardly get started for less than a million dollars to make it happen, and you have to get it up to snuff so it can be inspected and pass inspection with all the right equipment. So I would think a couple million dollars would, farmers could maybe pull together and do something like that. Um, if the CAFO organic milk was gone, do you think they could make it then? I think it would help a lot if the CAFO organic milk were gone. That would provide an, a more stable price perhaps and a better price for, for farmers to do it, yes. That would be good. Because we were just reading, we were wondering whether the increase, um, sorry, the um, 
too much milk, right? Too, too much organic milk right now. Uh, a lot of people have been saying it's because of the rise of the plant-based milks. But actually, the demand for organic dairy has continued to grow. Really? Through all this. And so, you know, I guess, I guess the question is, it's probably not so much the demand for these alternative milks. It's probably the influx of all the KFO milks. Uh, like they've continued to grow. There's a new processing facility uh, that Aurora's just put in in Missouri. Right. Uh, Natural Prairie Dairy, that, that 15,000 cow dairy is increasing. So, so they're growing through all this. Yes, it's very worrisome that these big organic dairies that are in CAFOs are growing so fast. I mean, I, I think they're going to continue to grow. I mean, if we had the origin of livestock rule in place, it would help slow it down a little bit. But I think they're going to continue to grow. It's, it's a great model for people who want to get wealthy. I mean, why do they have to have 5,000, 10,000 cows? Well, they don't milk any of them, you know. So it's not like it's a matter of, of their workload or anything. It's just a matter of skimming the profitability off the system. And they're going to do it as, as long as they can and, uh, until they, they're going to squeeze that market as far as they can. <clears throat> really, it's going to partly come, up to, come down to consumers. If consumers really want a real product, they're going to have to demand it. So we're going to have sort of a, a, a double kind of a system going on with organic. We're going to have the, the milk on the shelf of the big box stores, and we're going to have available some um, locally produced real organic dairy products. And, and people who want them are going to seek them out. And if enough people seek them out, then that can grow. And it's, it's really no threat. The, the cables are really no threat then because people don't want that product. They want this product. And so that's what's going to really solve it, I think. Would you tell everybody about your speech at the end of the NOSB? <laughs> well, you know, um, it, was my, it was my last meeting in 2017, I believe. Wasn't it the fall of 2017 in Jacksonville, Florida, was the last NOSB meeting I was on. And, and it was, uh, the big issue was hydroponics. And uh, we had put together this big proposal, and I was the chair of the crop subcommittee, and so I had written a lot, a lot of it. Um, that would uh, basically it was whether or not we should allow hydroponics, and the the, uh, the proposal was that we should not allow hydroponics. And there's a lot of game playing with um, semantics and definitions of hydroponic versus container growing, and a lot of attempt, a big attempt to confuse the issue by the the big players like the Driscolls and and the organ. Organic Trade Association to try to confuse the issue and say growing in the container is not hydroponic, even though it's all in really water-based. Um, so that's kind of the background to it, and uh, that vote lost by a big margin, and and uh, in a large part because most many of the NOSB members really aren't well versed in organic. They're not from an organic background. They come gets thrown on this NOSB. It's a huge workload, and it's it's you know it it really can confuse you and get you. Uh, overloaded. It did me even, and I had been an organic farmer for many, many years. Um, so it, sometimes you get this going on where there's, it was in the National Organic Standards Board, there's a corporate side and then there's a small family farm side on, on a lot of issues that happens. And in this issue, it was very clear. And the corporate is, the influence was huge on this issue and um, on the hydroponics. So when we lost by a big, by a, a big margin, um, I was a little frustrated because I didn't feel the NOSB really had understood the issue properly. And then I was recollecting on the last day of the meeting, uh, the I was the only outgoing member. And um, you always get a chance to, to say your farewell speech. And so uh, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning on that last day and I, I was thinking about, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about what I was going to say. 
and I started to write a few notes down. And, and so I basically talked about the hydroponic issue and the, um, the CAFO dairies and the chickens with no access to the outdoors and the origin of livestock rule and the grain fraud and how USDA had dropped the ball in all these places. And, and then it's funny because the Real Organic Project hadn't really been conceived yet, but I, I had the idea that we need something else to, and, and um, that we need some, I, I, at that point it was the, um, the regenerative organic certification that was out there. I said, we need something like this to um, let people know that it's really organic. And kind of that was my, my point I came to on it. And then after that, um, well, first of all, there are many organic farmers at that meeting in Jacksonville that were speaking uh, against hydroponics in favor of having soil-based um, crop production only. And uh, they all gave really passionate speeches, and I thought it was maybe changed the mind of some of these NOSB members. But it didn't, because that, for a lot of reasons. But anyway, after that, a lot of these farmers got together, and um, led by Dave Chapman, and... Uh, decided that they needed to do something and that they conceived of the Real Organic Project and, and I thought that's great and I wanted to get involved and help out with if I could. The issue of our time I think is going to be climate change and you know clearly what you're doing here there's a lot of science that backs that this is sequestering carbon. Um, do you have concerns with carbon credits now that it might go to business as usual or no-till farming with heavy use of fertilizers and herbicides, which can't be carbon friendly just because of the production of those uh, fertilizers and herbicides that's involved in the process. Um, what are your concerns, I think, for how the government handles climate and agriculture? Yeah, I, I'm concerned that with the climate change issue now, and there's money flowing to USDA for that, I'm, a, I'm concerned that there's going to be just a little tinkering around the edges. Whereas if they say, okay, you plant a cover crop here or something there, you, you kill your cover crop in the, sp in the spring when it's only this tall, that's going, to, that's, climate, that's going to be good for sequestering carbon. And it will be a little bit, but it's not going to solve the issue. It's not central to the solving the issue. But I'm afraid that we're going to see USDA paying for the, a few little things that are going to have only a marginal effect and aren't going to be really the, the systemic change that we need. Um, to address the climate change issue. And I'm not in favor of these carbon credits, um, especially when they're like used as offsets so an industry can pollute over here and buy carbon credits for farmers who are supposedly putting carbon in the soil. Um, I, I'm not really in favor of that. I think that we need to see real change on uh, the way farmers farm, a systemic change in the farming methodology. And I'm not really even big on, um, on trying to measure it because as a soil scientist, I know that it's, it's not easy to measure these things. And, um, and so it, it should be based upon an ecological approach, a, regen a truly regenerative approach to agriculture, and not just some little thing you're gonna call regenerative um, because a thousand acres or 10,000 acres over here did one little thing and put that on the label as regenerative. Um, so I, I'm a little concerned that we're not gonna get there with the USDA's approach. Do you think that organic should be what they're subsidizing? Or organic, really, climate? in my mind, real organic is regenerative, and it's what we should be trying to push farms towards. And we need to, uh, and, and organic farming needs more help, more research. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work going on, and I'm doing some here on my farm with, um, with uh, trying to go to no-till in crop production. Now, in my perennial pastures here, I, I feel pretty good, you know. 
I feel I can call this regenerative very easily by the highest standards. I don't till, I don't put any herbicides on it, and I have diversity and so on. But in a crop production system, it's a little harder, more challenging to do that. And so um, we can use more help, more research to try to get these systems worked out in organic. Because I think organic is really a solution because we, in a regenerative system, we don't want to till, of course, but we don't also want to apply chemicals because they disrupt the whole microbiology. And so we need to get away from that as well. So um, a regenerative organic is to me the real solution for climate change. Is there anything I didn't get to in, in your book? Um, well, I'll go back, I'll, I'll go back to when, um, during the Jacksonville meeting, uh, when the debate was going on on hydroponics. Um, I think that some of the NOSB members were very kind of reductionist in their thinking. And they, they look at some little thing and think it's, that hydroponics is better than, than a soil-based system. And uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, but there's also some conflicts of interest. We found out from the recent New Yorker article that one of the NOSB members who was very much in favor of hydroponics was actually working on a large-scale hydroponic operation or hydroponic project. And she did not reveal that information to us. As a matter of fact, she was saying, uh, indicating that she supported hydroponics because it was good for small-scale farmers, which is not the case. And we know that um, hydroponics is causing the monopolization of crops like strawberries and, and so many other crops. Uh, so we had that. And then we also had um, on the NOSB a, an employee from Driscoll's, who was the largest hydroponic producer in the country, or maybe the world. And um, she uh, was, you know, very influential. And um, I think that she was able to sway, especially some of these NOSB members who didn't really have a good handle on what organic was all about anyway, to sway them. And even though she, she had finished her term before the Jacksonville vote, her influence continued on. As a matter of fact, her last day in, um, on, on the board, early in 2017, she sent out an email to the whole board, including the new members coming on, which I thought was a little bit out of, out of line, um, giving a whole big uh, argument for, for hydroponics. And it, to me, it looked like it was written by a lawyer, probably a Driscoll's lawyer. Um, but so she was influencing the new five members coming onto the board um, and, and some of those members really didn't have a grasp in my mind of organic anyhow. And so, um, and these are the people that voted on hydroponics. And so there was a conflict of interest there on uh, the member who had been working on a hydroponic project, but did not reveal that to the board. And there was uh, the member uh, who was working for Driscoll's who did not recuse herself either. Do you think there was a similar balance of hydroponic in, um interests on the board as there was for the number of producers in the organic industry? <laughs> <laughs> there are very few um, hydroponic producers in the organic industry. And actually the, the board had more hydroponic representation than, than certainly the organic industry has for hydroponics. Is there anything that I didn't get to in your mind? Um, let's see. You want to bring the cows home? Sure, what time is it here? Yeah, I better get going. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 60. Please join us next time when our guest is leader of the Greenhorns Movement and co-founder of the National Young Farmers Coalition, 
Maine seaweed farmer, Severin von Scharner Fleming. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. See you next time.